welcome to the Production Talk podcast with me, Jan of MixArtist.com.au. In this podcast series, we celebrate the modern way of producing music. We want to talk about all things related to songwriting, recording at home and music production. So if you produce your music at home, this is the place to be. Please subscribe and recommend this podcast to all your friends. This is the Production Talk Podcast, Episode 45. Check one, two, one, two. So we got a good yep. close, but when That's you fine. speak sort of on axis, like they this? Are bit, they're a bit sensitive to. Okay, you, so, so a better bit, about here? Yeah, and maybe just a touch closer. You have headphones right there. Oh, yeah. You should be able to hear yourself. There's a bit of wind, but. Uh, Check one, two. Oh, I sound crisp and clear. Listen to that. It's not bad, yeah. Just uh, maybe just yeah. turn the gain down just a touch. Check one, two, one, two. Pop, pop, pop. Oh yeah, alright. I, I won't be doing that, don't worry. Okay. I, won't, I won't be doing sirens. Are the headphones too loud for you? No, it's good. I just like I prefer without. Right. Then I'm less self-conscious about my voice. <laughs> like when I can hear my voice really loud and present, then it's yeah. like I become more. I'm start to think about how my voice sounds rather than what I'm saying. Okay. So I prefer Thank like you. this, yeah. Yeah. Look, we're already talking about recording philosophy. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Look, uh, I like to start my um, episodes with uh, an acknowledgement of country, if, if you're okay with A hundred percent, I would prefer that. Thank you. Good, so welcome back to another episode of the Production Talk podcast. And uh, let's first uh, acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land that we are meeting on today, the Arakwil people of the Bandjalung nations. And I would like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Big love. Mm -hmm. So um, we're out in Suffolk Park today, sitting outside uh, Jake's house. With mm -hmm. me is Mr. Jake Savona. Welcome to the podcast and thank you for nice to here. be here thank you so much and it's nice to start the show with a welcome to country especially when we ride along mm. national park here in a very beautiful tea tree lake yes. um on the way to broken head so mm. um it's yeah definitely an area rich in history and culture you know it it truly is it truly mm. is um jake you are a full-time musician um, it's true how old were you when you realized that music would be your future career well i started playing piano at six years old mm. but i didn't really start to get super passionate about music until maybe i was 13 years old and i remember listening to some of my mom's vinyl and i remember in particular putting on some js bark i can't remember i think it was like a violin concerto it was definitely something orchestral and i suddenly remember being able to it was suddenly rather than just being this massive sound i could suddenly hear the bass parts and the high parts and the middle parts and all the polyphony in that music suddenly i remember just like opened mm. up it was like my consciousness had expanded or my ears had suddenly clicked and suddenly i could hear all the individual parts simultaneously in the music i was like wow this is how the composers heard their music you know and yeah right. and then um And then I started collecting a lot of jazz vinyl and that's when I started getting into improvisation and blues and jazz and so forth. And then my interest in music just tripled, quadrupled basically. And okay. um, But I, in my, when I, I studied music, I did a music degree at Melbourne University. I got a scholarship and actually went over to the UK and finished it in Glasgow, which was oh, an amazing wow. experience. Yeah. Then I lived in Brixton after that and that's where I started hearing all the sound system parties and mm. I got introduced to bass music, you know, the yeah. proper you know, Josh Shaka and the proper bass and sound system parties. And um, it was like my initiation really. And 
I came back to Australia, I bought my first sampler and I started making beats, but I didn't become full-time music until about 26, 2017, I think it was. No, sorry, 2007 yeah. because um, I'd released an album. I actually went to Jamaica in 2004 and I came back and released the album which I called Melbourne Meets Kingston and Triple mm-hmm. J picked that up and suddenly I was booked for festivals and I, I became full-time music from about then. Yeah, right. Mm. Um, okay, that basically started... Um, a musical story we'll get a little yeah. bit more into that yeah. later yeah. on but um i think the first time that i saw you on stage i'm not quite sure when that was but i believe it was with the melbourne scar orchestra yeah Is that's that very possible, possible. yeah yeah, yeah. I, i was playing many shows yeah. with them yeah i guess from we're in 22 now i guess from like 2015 mm. or 16 so about 2019 basically up until the pandemic um yeah. and we did yeah we did some really nice tours we played womad we played blues fest um so yeah that's a big band nikki bomber leads often there were two or three keyboard players so yeah um yeah very fun project phenomenal band yeah, life. Yeah. you know i've never seen anything like this mm-hmm. nothing comes close mm-hmm. to that and it's, it's mm-hmm. one of those bands that Even if you listen to the record, you don't even get a glimpse of just yeah, how powerful it is. It's live. very enter- entertaining yeah. live and it's lot, very, very fun, very, very energetic, chunky and yeah, mm. lovely, good, mm. fantastic. So, uh, but you also um, were involved in lots of uh, your own projects. So uh, you are not just a musician, but you're also a producer. So Absolutely, yeah. I, I mean, how did you learn the craft? Um, well, like I said, I, I studied sort of classical music and mm. music composition and. Um, and classical piano performance up until the age of about 20, 21, 22. I finished my degree in 2000 in the UK. Um, but I remember actually at high school because I was a classical nerd, you know, and I wanted to start playing in the jazz band and none of the jazz musicians, they were all a bit too cool for school and they wouldn't show me any scales or any of their tricks. So I ended up doing what a classical musician would do and 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 started notating all their solos, like Miles Davis solos mm. and Winton Kelly, who's one of my favorite piano players. And that's sort of how I learned the blue scales. And I suddenly realized, okay, there's like, um, it's not just this like unapproachable or impossible music for a classical musician. Actually, there's scales and forms. And I just like, yeah, I loved that. That's how I sort of taught myself and... Um, and then fast forward, like I said, I finished my music degree in the UK. I lived in Brixton. I fell in love with Jamaican music. Um, and I came back to, I bought a, a Yamaha SU700 sampler in London mm. and brought it back to Australia and started sampling my vinyls and started experimenting with making beats. You know, that was even before I had a laptop with Pro Tools, you know. So all my first beats were, were off the sampler. Um, and I released an album in, I think it was 2001, just called... Um, Basin Roots, actually, mm. was my first record. And, uh, you know, the first two albums I did, there's a couple tracks that are okay, but it was very much me learning my crafts. But it was when yeah. I went to Jamaica for the first time in 2004 and I took a whole lot of instrumentals that I'd recorded with my band in Melbourne or I produced some of the tracks as well and I took them to Jamaica. And that was, yeah, the first ever time i believe an australian producer had gone to jamaica and, and worked on a record so that's why i called it melbourne meets kingston and yeah. i never dreamt at that time that later on i would be going to cuba and i'd have a havana meets kingston project <laughs> but the name turned out yeah. to be really useful later on you know so, but yeah back in 2004 I, i called it melbourne meets kingston and we released mm. the album on elephant tracks a sydney hip-hop label in 2007 it came out 
And yeah, Triple J really supported it, and that was great. Suddenly, I was being booked for festivals, and at the time, yeah. I was like, "But I'm not a DJ. I don't." They said, "No, you just have to do it. Go and do it." And so I became mm. a DJ almost by accident. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. Mm. So, in in some ways, you were actually years ahead. You basically did international uh, collaborations. Yeah. Before it was hip. <laughs> well, I kind of had to. I think if I'd been living in yeah. London or yeah. living in Berlin or living mm. somewhere where there's a big Caribbean population or there's at least. Mm a lot of travel because when I grew up in Australia there were almost no Africans in Australia mm. there wasn't any Jamaican vocalists and there and even in Melbourne now there's very 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 few Jamaicans that come to Australia we're so far mm. away you know yes. so I was craving mm. that sound of Jamaican you know? I was listening to reggae I was listening to dancehall mm. and Jamaicans singing patois they have they singing um, their music is very culture and and, mm. and identity and, and uh, orientated, you know. Like, so I just realized early on, okay, I'm gonna have to get to Jamaica if I really want to yeah. hear how the music sounds there and how it feels there. And I actually need to get to the heartland of the music. So yeah, went to Jamaica for the first time in 2004 and just kept going back. I loved it so much. Cool. And I would imagine, you know, the cultural differences obviously are, you know, are pretty. Impressive, I guess. Mm -hmm. What is the difference in their production and, and uh, style and in you know, their performance style? How is that different to what you were used to here in Australia? Well, I mean, I was still learning my trade even mm. back then, you know. Um, and I guess um, my first trip to Jamaica, I wasn't really seeing how other people were producing beats because I went basically went to Jamaica with a bag of instrumentals, you know. So, And then I would just played artists over their rhythms in the studio i ended up in a grill which is on the other side of jamaica to kingston and in the end there was this you know this was even before facebook or instagram or anything you know so it was a lot of word of mouth um and yeah you know at the time i was a humble guy just starting up but word sort of spread in that town that there was this like famous producer i was totally not famous i still don't believe i'm famous <laughs> so like you know so it, i ended up having cues of, of jamaican singers you know um, you know, especially younger singers was just starting up queuing to audition actually. And oh, so wow. I had all these like great singers that I found just because they rolled up to the studio and waited patiently. Some waited for days, you know, for a chance to get really? in the studio. Yeah, yeah. So it was a very, very interested, <laughs> interesting story. And Jesse I, my friend who I went with who who um runs the chant down Babylon, Babylon Burning, sorry, the show on PBS FM in Melbourne. It's one of the longest running radio shows in the world it's definitely the longest reggae show in australia's i think they hit their 20 year mark recently but um uh yeah he he was he he called me uh what did he call me jake ruby after jack ruby because jack in the in there's some <laughs> famous old film um is it rockers or it's one of the films where you see jack ruby who produced burning spear auditioning artists you know and there's a queue of jamaican artists um, in that old film waiting to, to perform for him. So, uh, yeah, you know, it was quite this, there's that culture there of, of, <laughs> of produce. So one interesting thing in Jamaica is it's changed a lot now in the last five mm. to 10 years. But when I first went to Jamaica, it was you were either a producer or an artist, you know, mm. so a producer is someone that make the rhythm, make the instrumental. Yep. And the artist is the someone that sings or raps or sing jays, which is what they call in Jamaica when it's a mix of melodic singing and rapping, you know, um, And it's very rare that any artist would do both roles. So the the singer would go to the producer, find the rhythm, and then they record. But now artists like Protégé, I think even Chronics, a lot of them are getting very much involved in their own production. The Marleys have been doing that for a while. Mm. Stephen Marley's a great producer as well as a singer. Yeah. You know, I think, I don't know how many Grammys Stephen Marley has now. But oh, he's, I love he's, his music. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, 
So, yeah, a lot of the artists now in Jamaica realize, well, if they produce the rhythm as well, then they'll get 100% of the publishing, not just 50%, you know. Mm, so um, it's become a lot more common that artists are involved in the yeah. music and the production. Yeah. yeah. I've worked with a handful of Jamaican singers over the years, and mm. what struck me is that all of them seem to be 10 dBs louder than anybody else I've ever met. They seem to have really, really strong, loud vocals. Is, mm. is that your experience as well? Oh, 100%. Mm. It's like... One of the things I love about Jamaican music is, yeah, like the confidence mm. of the vocals. Um, definitely dancehall, it's like high energy and, um, you know, they have this style of, uh, of rapping that they call DJing. You know, we, we, we think of a DJ as someone that plays the songs. They, since Jamaica, since the 60s, I mean, they're for some of the first, one of the first countries to have vocalists that would improvise lyrics over a record, you know, mm. like artists way back like Uroy and Big Youth and... Um, these artists, Uroy, um, I mean, King Tubby was doing some of the first sound system parties in, yeah. in Kingston, some of the first sound system parties in the world, I believe. So, yeah. you know, they'd start in the afternoon and go to lunchtime the next day, you know, and, they string, and King Tubby would string up these massive sound systems. And this was the beginning of the remix as well. And we're talking late 60s, early 70s, because King Tubby would get the mixes and he would cut a dub plate like a acetate, like a one-off vinyl, and he'd do his own unique mix because he had the tape. So... Mm. You can imagine in Jamaica back then, like, a, say, a hit record had just come out, and then suddenly the next day they they're hearing Jamaicans are hearing it on the radio, and the next day or that week, King Tubby's got a sound system party somewhere, and he actually play the hit song, hype up the crowd, and then flip the record and actually play his own unique dub or version. Oh, and yeah. and actually, Jamaicans thought he was a wizard. They in the beginning, before it became common practice, they actually thought he was a magician and he was somehow doing magic <laughs> up there because they couldn't believe they were hearing. The, the hit song that just come out, but a stripped back version, a different mix, maybe with vocals coming in and out in dub, like it's mm. almost like quite ghostly, you know. Yeah. And then Uroy, who was travel with him, would do it live, voc sort of rapping the DJ style over the over the record. So it w it would have been something to behold because now we take it for granted, you know, the remix and, and we go to a, a party and we'll see someone emceeing over the track or hyping up. But back then it was revolutionary, you know. Mm. Um so this little island in the Caribbean, Jamaica, they basically invented the remix. They invented the version. They invented and they, they were very key in the beginning of rap and hip-hop in terms yeah. of like yeah. you see Uroy in the studio doing his um, DJ versions of tracks. He's literally got like a sort of a 58 or something similar in his hand, like running around the studio like he's on stage, you know. You just mm. never see that in the studio. Normally mm. you've got the mic and you've got your headphones on and, you know, you want to make sure there's no noise and stuff. Like you see some of the footage of you, Roy, and it's literally like he's on stage but he's in a studio, you know, and he's just improvising the vocals and that's the cut and that gets released. You know, it's a, it's a great, great mm. tradition that they began that's still very strong. So back to what you're saying about the vocals being so confident and loud. Yeah, I think they have that they're, when they're in the studio, that's like they're performing live, you know. It's yeah. like, and in Jamaica, you have to be good to get a chance in the studio. There's so much competition. Their, mm. their quality, their skill level so high anyway. So you have to be up there to actually even get a chance to get yeah, in the right. studio, you know. You can't be sort of timid or shy. It doesn't work. <laughs> and that leads to, I guess, a rather quick uh, production turnover. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, look at yeah. Lee Perry. I was thinking yeah. about him the other day, like, He's releasing 10 LPs a year or more, you know, like, oh, and so many sevens and singles. Yeah. Like, I'm almost ashamed of how slow, you know, we really, you know, we have a three month release plan and rah, rah, rah for one uh, song and this yeah. whole thing. Like, back then, they're just churning it out, you know, and same with Motown and all these mm. labels. They just had great musicians who wanted to work, who wanted to play, really creative, yeah. banging it out, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah you're right. So, uh, 
do you prefer that? You know, fast workflows when it comes to producing, but yeah, it, it, well, yeah. What are the pros and cons of you know spending a year or two in a studio and you know taking two days to tune a snare <laughs> or just get it together and knock it out? Yeah, I much prefer the quick process because yeah. it's so satisfying. Like. Yeah. Sometimes I'll write a beat and I'll have all the inspiration and the excitement in five minutes, you know. Like mm. I can basically write a new track and have all that vibe and energy and all the new ideas like within half an hour, the bed, the basic track. But then by the time you get a vocalist in and, and record and write the vocals and mix it, it could be a year later, you know. Mm. So it's a bit, yeah, it, it kind of drags it out yeah. a bit. But yeah. it, that's quite normal okay. in these days and times because we… We kind of produce and tend to overproduce things, I think, as well. Yeah, you know, yeah, like right. looking for mm. perfection or, mm. you know, really taking the time with a mix. And, yeah. You know, there's drawbacks as well as positives to that. Yeah. Mm. And um, is it right that you also mix your own music? Yeah. Or yeah. Some of it, at yeah, least? Yeah, yeah. No, I mix, I generally, yeah. I'll mix everything to maybe I'm 90% happy with the mix. And then yeah. I generally get like Glenn Christensen, Terry Stylus is his producer name. He's in Melbourne. He helps me with the final mix. Mm. It can be great to have another set of ears, you know, just yeah. because when you've been working on something for months, you can lose yeah. perspective. Yes. Um, and yeah, and he's mm. like, he's a very experienced mix engineer. So mm. he can kind of add a bit of that extra magic. So you formed like a like a team there, yeah. where, you know, you no, get it really to good. one place and he yeah. takes it to the next level exactly. with you together. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. but I mean, I'll always do mm. the final final mm. mix, but yeah. I'll ask him, yeah. you know, tighten up, please tighten up these yeah. drums, or I'm not happy with this vocal sound. Can you get a bit yeah. more, um, you know, shine or silkiness or magic or something? So yeah, it can, it's really good to have a, a, a sort of a, a, and it's like a, I don't want to use the word assistant. He's not my assistant, yeah. but someone to assist me with, yeah, you know, that final mix. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. And uh, say, are you happy to talk about your mixing setup? Um, do you work from home or do you rent studios to mix, you know? A bit uh, of both. Yeah. Like I don't, um, I love, like especially with a project like Havana Meets Kingston where it's, mm. you know, these amazing musicians like Sly and Robbie, the Jamaican rhythm section on, um, you know, some of the musicians from the Buena Vista Social Club. And so I've got these amazing musicians that we recorded in this incredible studio in Havana. But yeah, so I want to run it to tape. I want to run it through a nice desk. Um, I, mm. I don't have a million dollar SSL desk. That would yeah, be yeah. nice. Yeah, yeah, right. okay. <laughs> so mm. often I've mixed at Sing Sing in Melbourne or mm. now the Box Hill Tape have the Sing Sing desk. So I've mixed a bit there. Um, I've also mixed on a nice Neve desk at... Um, um, yeah, at a friend studio in Malam. So generally, mm. I like to. Um, that's Dave Atkins, by the way, from mm. um, uh, what's his project? Um, I'll have to come to him in a minute. But he's yeah. got a nice studio in Malam with a nice Neve desk. Is, is so that Dave. Yeah, Dave. Yeah, Dave yeah. Atkins. He's, yeah. he's got a custom series I installed that. Uh, yes. No, actually, I didn't. I've maintained that. I was oh, good on you. Involved in the build of that console. Yeah. A long yeah. time ago. He, yeah. He's a legend. What a drummer he yeah, is. Yeah, totally amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Yeah. Look, uh, you've given us a couple of teasers already of, of, uh, of course, the project that we need to talk about, mm. uh, Havana Meets Kingston. Yes. Just before we talk about this, can you just describe, uh, you know, it was a new thing. It wasn't possible up until you took this project and made it real. What was the political climate before, you know, Havana and Cuba, Jamaica, they were close together, but... Can sure. you describe why they could so, yeah, it's, it's so going on? It's so interesting because Jamaica mm. and Cuba are two islands in the Caribbean. They're literally 160 miles apart. Mm. I didn't realize how close they were. I was going to Jamaica for all these years. And, you know, I love Cuban music. I'd grown up with 
the Buena Vista Social Club. I think I found that album when I was about 19 or 20. And yep. as someone that loved to play jazz piano, I mean, their Cuban jazz is just another level. They have oh, yeah. a very unique sound, you know. World class. But then, yeah, I got distracted by Jamaica and kind of forgot about Cuba. And just, um, it was like, I first went to Jamaica in 2004, but I didn't get to Cuba till 10 years later, 2014. And how mm. that happened is I was in San Fran and I had a flight to, to, to Jamaica a few days later. And a friend of mine, Sahida, had just come back from Cuba and I saw some of her photos on Facebook of Havana. It's like, wow, I'd seen photos of Cuba before, but I'd just forgotten how beautiful it is. I thought, mm -hmm. wow, I really need to get there. It looks so amazing. And I looked it up on the map and suddenly I realized, man, it's right next to Jamaica. I didn't realize. And then I looked at flights and they were cheap from, from, mm. from Jamaica to Cuba. So I thought, wow, I'm going to – and so I booked a 10-day in that Jamaica trip in 2014 – in the middle of the trip, I booked a 10-day trip to, to Cuba. So I flew Kingston to Havana, had 10 days in Cuba and traveled around and had all kinds of crazy stories. It was mm. really fun. And on the last day um, in Havana, I remember sitting in this nice cafe in Old Havana, um, drinking coffee and daydreaming, and they were playing Cuban rumba on the CD player. And, and rumba is like a percussion music with a – it's folkloric, but it's also very spiritual. It's connected with the Santeria, the religion in, in, in Cuba. And suddenly I had this idea of, well, how would it sound with the Naibingi, the Jamaican, the Jamaican sort of sacred music mixed up? How would reggae sound with salsa? And I, thought, I just thought, that, wow, this would be a cool project. I'd love to do it. And I thought, oh, for sure someone would have done this before. Because in Miami, there's so many Jamaicans mm. and Cubans living together. Yeah. So when I got back to Australia, I did some research and I realized, well, actually, no, there hadn't ever been anything like this. Because in Miami... Uh, the Jamaicans don't speak Spanish and the Cubans don't really speak English, so there's not a lot of mingling, you know. Yeah. Um, and then I thought, well, maybe over the over the years there have been some projects like this, but I spoke to people and they literally never had been. Because what happened when the when the Cuban Revolution happened, before that, that was in the in the fifties, before that there was a lot of cross-pollination between Cuba and Jamaica and a lot of travel back and forth. But when Fidel had his revolution and took over Cuba, um, you know, became the president of Cuba. Um, America imposed the sanctions and suddenly it was mm. cut off from the world. And so yeah. that kind of blocked all that, all that trade. And also you've got to remember Cubans, again, don't speak English. Jamaicans don't speak Spanish. Mm. So that was that a la literally barrier. a language barrier. Yeah. Yeah. And then the economics, both islands are very poor, particularly mm. Cuba. I mean, both have rich pockets for sure, like all countries, mm. but it was crazy, no record label or no one had ever funded something like this. So I got back to Australia and I realized it would cost a lot of money, but I really wanted to do it. So I, me and my friend Molai did a grant together and I got the grant. And so that was, uh, that was from the Australia Council and that was $50,000. So I, mm -hmm. I literally put all that money into the fly. I called up Sly actually, he's from Sly Dumbo, who's, who's part of the Sly and Robbie team and said, do you want a trip to Cuba? And they all loved the idea. They'd always mm -hmm. wanted to go to Cuba, but they never had. They'd never had the chance. So everyone loved the idea. That was the great thing about this project. Everyone loved the idea so much that it just opened the doors, you know. Yeah. And so fast forward six months later, I'd bought them all flights. I'd booked the studios. I'd organized fit the fees for everyone. That was pretty much the whole grant gone, but it was such a good use of the money, you know. And, yeah, we flew into – I flew to Jamaica, picked them all up, flew to Cuba, and the rest is history, as they say. We did 10 days at Agram Studios in central Havana, which mm. is the most beautiful studio. It's where the Buena Vista Social Club album was recorded. Yeah, it's And it was just magic. Studio, the whole yeah. trip was magic, yeah. Who was your engineer there? Did you engineer yourself? I or? took Eric Coelho, who I believe you know. Yes, um, Eric, I know Eric. Eric is the partner of Anna Coelho, mm -hmm. and Anna's... Um, was managing the project that time for about three or four years for yeah. the whole time the Havana Meets Kingston 
was sort of initially happening. And they both, Anna actually came to Cuba sort of, I think halfway through the sessions, she came, she flew in. Mm. Um, and Eric was wonderful because he's Argentinian, so he's fluent Spanish. Um, he loved the idea of the project. He knows, he loves reggae. He came to Jamaica before Cuba as well, and it was his first time in Jamaica. So it was an amazing trip for him. Um, we also had the assistant engineers that work at Egram. Um, but they were, they were lovely but quite lazy, actually. We really had to push <laughs> them to do anything. Yeah, and right. so it was really good to have Eric there because he was mm. just onto it, working fast, working hard. Yeah. And a lot, of the, a lot of the equipment at Egram wasn't working, which was frustrating on one hand, but it kind of didn't matter because the room itself sounds so good mm. and all the microphones were working. They have these beautiful 1930s and 1940s yeah. microphones. They had four or five original U47s, you know. Oh, wow. And... Mm. Um, it's funny because Yeroldi Abro, who's the amazing conga player on the project and uh, is considered maybe Cuba's top conga player, he literally grabbed all the 47s and put them on the congas and he said, that's how we do it. This is how we record the congas. And I had to wow. slowly wean the 47s away from him because we wanted to use them for vocals and other things as well, you know. Um, but, yeah, they had some beautiful ribbon mics as well, 87s. Mm. They might have had a 67 there as well. So, yeah, very, very nice microphones. Yeah. Look, what really stands out to me on, on this record is the horn sound. And uh, whatever you did there, they just sound so natural, so punchy, so clean, oh, but also so so full of character all at the same time. Mm. And well, they're such amazing players. Like Julito yeah. Padron, who's mm. the the key trumpet player who, who I've taken on tour, he has this almost a Cuban version of the Miles Davis tone, I guess. He's yeah, so right. atmospheric and so every note he plays is just brilliant. Yeah. And, yeah, recording in that room, the horns just sound good. Egram has this amazing kind of short but woody and really nice reverb. Mm. It's a very unique sound, actually, that studio. Yeah. Um, horns, piano, everything sounds so good in there. Yeah, fantastic. Mm. And um, how did the songs come together? Did you uh, rehearse with the band? Did you give them directions? Did you write all the songs and put them together before you got there? Yeah, before leaving Australia, I was yeah. thinking about doing charts and everything. And, mm. and I realized it's going to be so time consuming. But I also realized, no, I just want to sketch out the songs because that way if it's easy charts, just with chords and a few riffs and a few ideas for sort of bass lines or, you know, melodies then that will give them enough enough structure but also enough freedom to really to relax and to really play. And it worked mm. out the best possible thing I could have done because everyone just took those ideas and took them to another level. Robbie almost always changed the bass lines that I gave him and improved them, of course. You know, there was only mm. a couple of tunes where I had to say, no, please play at least a little bit of the bass line that I wrote and then I would mix <laughs> the lines, you know. Yeah. Uh, Chan Chan was one of those ones and, yeah, he, he, he made up his own bass line but mm. the, he also we recorded the one. So in the, in the mix I would just uh, sort of switch between his two bass lines, you know. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, by doing that it was just nice. It just meant the musicians could relax. They're so good. They're so, uh, Cuban jazz is very advanced. So, you know, a, a song with eight chords is very simple for them and, and yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, all right. Mm. Mm. <laughs> well, so when you work with musicians on that level, do they still get nervous in the studio? Do you need to work with the performances? Do they sometimes Not at all. Like It was like the, the very first song we recorded was actually the instrumental um, that earned, it's called 410 San Miguel, which is the address of the studio. And actually I took the instrumental we recorded there and later I took it to Jamaica and I found Ernest Wrangler and we went out to his country house and I recorded his guitar and he's, basically Jamaica's mm. top guitarist and one of the inventors of reggae music, you know, way back yeah, in the right. studio one days and before. Um, 
But that initial session, like me and Eric, I remember we just looked at each other as the musicians started playing because remember they couldn't, there was the language divide, you know, the Cubans don't speak English and the Jamaicans don't speak Spanish. And I'd put the chords out and I'd kind of on the piano for Rolando, our pianist sort of showed him the chords and everyone. Mm. And then I just counted the band in and as soon as everyone started playing, I was like, wow, this is, from the beginning it was already sounding amazing, you know. And it was a very nice atmosphere in the studio because they were so interested. This mm. Everyone was so interested in the project. So the Cubans really wanted to hear what the Jamaicans were going to do and vice versa. And so they really listened and they really sort of made a lot of space and it was a very enjoyable experience. I think everyone was loving the fact this was such a new, different thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, wow. Yeah. And how long did the entire project take from basically, you know, when you started recording until the record was well, released? Well, we did 10 days at Egram in 2014, yeah. and I flew Sly and Robbie and Bongo Herman, the, the famous Jamaican percussionist, and Bopi, our Jamaican guitarist, who toured with Dennis Brown, and it was a really, really nice rhythm section. And then we had these Cuban legends. It was about... I think in the end for the first record, there were over, I think it was over 50 different musicians, you know, it was just so wow. many. But I couldn't, so many vocalists I wanted to work with in Jamaica and I didn't have the funds to fly everyone in, you know. So basically I used those 10 days to get all the instrumentals together and I got a lot of the Cuban vocals, choruses and melodic ideas. And then after those 10 days, I did a lot more sessions in Cuba, smaller sessions with vocalists, one-on-one -on -one or a small group. Then I took all that music back to Jamaica and that's mm. where I, I linked up with Turbulence and Luton Fire and all these singers that I wanted to work with that I hadn't been able to fly into Cuba, you know? Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so there were a lot of yeah, vocal overdubs done. Because literally otherwise I would have had to pay for 30 flights, you know, yeah, or something. Yeah, and it just, mm. it wouldn't make sense. So what what the magic was having the Cuban and Jamaican musicians in the studio together in Cuba, yeah. in Havana, at Egram, that was the magic. And then I took some time to sort of mix and arrange those instrumentals. Um, and like I said earlier, some choruses we'd already recorded. Then I took it to the vocalist to, to kind of, to complete the songs, you know? Wow, okay. Mm. And... Uh, then I guess you would have to go through some editing process, cleaning up. You know, oh my God, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, some of the tracks had yeah. like 20 yeah. musicians on them. So I realized yeah. pretty quickly, depending how I was going to arrange the songs, you know, I could pull out eight mm. instruments and, and mm. it would still sound good. If I had everything at once, maybe sometimes it was too busy. Yeah. Some of the tracks I wanted to strip back. So it, there was a lot of freedom there yeah. as a producer. It was basically... And I also recorded it quite cleverly. I had Sly, his drums in isolation. I had the Cuban double bass in isolation. I had Bongo Herman's percussion in isolation. Then in the main mm. room in Egram, I had the piano, the horns, um, percussion. So you get that amazing room sound. And then I had Robbie's bass in the main control room, DI'd. And um, I'd have guide vocals in the in that in the mixing room, DI'd as I mean as a as a guide. Mm. Then later we'd record them with a better mic setup yeah, and more yeah. preparation, you know. Yeah. So this way it was really good. It meant I had an, enough live mix to get that feeling of a live sound yeah. and enough isolation that later I could do remixes or or just mm. totally dramatically or radically change the arrangements, you know? When you say in isolation, um, so the drummer was in his own room, I guess? Yeah, so in, basically you can imagine Egram is this beautiful, big, rectangular uh, room with these amazing yellow wooden panels all around and beautiful wooden floorboards. 
and at the back of the, that room there were three booths. Yeah. So I had slides, drums, and the double bass and percussion, Jamaican percussion isolated in those three rooms. Mm. And then, yeah, I had the grand piano, horns, and the percussion in the main room yeah. with a little isolation but not much. It's really, mm. really mixed. And then... Um, and then in the in the mixing room, that's where I'd have Robbie on bass. He wanted yeah. to have his own space and, and a guide vocal. And were they all still able to see each other? Are the rooms arranged with glass windows? Yeah, to, yeah, to yeah, yeah, yeah. Vibe they of could each hear other? each other, yeah. and, and yeah. there was enough mm. of a window that it could at least mm. see. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, headphones were very important, so yeah, everyone course, could hear. Course. Yeah, good. And and obviously that gave you all the abilities to you know chop it up later. Exactly, re and, arrange, rearrange, and remix. Yeah. And and how many takes did you record per per song often, approximately? Yeah, often the songs mm. are like you know that first song I mentioned that we became the Ernest Wrangler instrumental. I think we did three takes, three mm. or four takes, and yeah. maybe a couple rough starts, and then yeah, generally two or three takes, and we know that one of them would be the yeah. you know you know yeah yeah, yeah. and almost yeah, everything makes... with a click track as well. Oh yeah, right. Um, okay. Just to keep things tight, and mm. also again later if we were going to remix or stuff, we know we wouldn't have to like yeah. it wouldn't be super painful process. There was one or two tracks we did without click track because the musicians mm. asked, but generally everything was click track. Yeah. 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 Cool. Nice. Mm. And um, then, how long did the the mix mixing stage take? Did you start mixing yourself, let's say, on, on your computer or? Well, I, I do rough mixes yeah. of everything, yeah. especially to get it ready for the vocals. But for the final mix, yeah, we took it down. I took all the sessions down to Melbourne, and we mixed on the Sing Sing SSL. It's a Uh, gold yep. series is it G series it's a, a 9000 K uh, if I'm not mistaken there you go and yeah, yeah, we mix everything mm. on that it's mm. sound amazing so mm. we wanted to get that level yeah. of we wanted to be very beautiful and analog mm. and warm you know yeah. And, yeah, not just mix in the box and, and how long did the, the, the mixing stage take um I think we do two songs a day, mix two songs a day, basically. So, oh, that's good. Yeah, I think it's like about what would have been a good week or so, yeah. or ten days. But then we do, then we'd find, then we'd bounce from the SSL. We'd bounce out stems yeah. and then adjust those stems as well. We wouldn't try and get a final mix again because we wanted stems for remixes. Mm. So we'd basically get these massive sessions, maybe like 50 tracks or more, down to about 10 stems. Yeah, and then from then we could take our time from from the SSL. We get 10 stems and then we could take our time in the box, so to yes. speak, just EQing or slightly adjusting or, mm. you know, yeah. Straightening it out. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah that makes makes a lot of yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, and and who mastered that record? Um, it was mastered by Joe Laporta in Sterling Studio, New York. Oh, lovely. Yeah, he, made, is... he was, it was interesting. Yeah. Carnival was our first single in mm. 2017. And I said that, you know, we, were like, who, we didn't know who we were going to master. So I actually sent it to seven or eight mastering engineers. Yeah, right. And I explained, look, we've got this project, but we're not sure who we want to get to master. Could you master this and give us a demo? And, and Joe's master was just a mile ahead of everyone else's. Yeah, yeah right. He just managed to get that beautiful top end without it sounding harsh. He just opened up and brought the mixes to life, but not mm. too loud and not too squashed. It was just perfect for the project. Yeah, yeah so, right. Yeah. In, nowadays, a lot of people mix and master themselves. What's your take on this? Is that a good idea? No, again, you too. I feel like mm. I'd be too close to I too close to the mix, and also mm. mastering such a unique art. Mm. I'm not qualified to master. I don't. I I, I can just do mm. some basic mastering mm. sometimes for people. But yeah, for this level mm. of our project, I wanted one of the yeah. best mastering engineers in the world. That's why yeah. we went with Sterling, you know. You know, I've got three record labels. Mm. The project has a lot of visibility. Mm. I want it to sound, mm. I wanted to, yeah, I want it to meet that kind of uh, very high level audio 
um, yeah, sound and quality, so to speak, you know? Fantastic. Um, well, what a journey. And then, of course, uh, the next stage was, you know, a lot of promotion and yep. uh, you toured Well, we were lucky. We did this, my filmmakers yeah. that came to Cuba, we did a little three-minute promotion. It became like the EPK for the project. Yeah. And yeah, it was amazing. Actually, in 2017, I just posted that on the Havana Meets Kingston Facebook page without any publicity or promotion or ads or anything. And I think we had 900 followers at that time. And it went viral. Within a day, it had got to one and a half million views. And no way. Tens of thousands of comments and everyone tagging each other. Let's go to Cuba. Let's go to Jamaica. It was sort of during the Trump era and I think everyone was just over the racism and they could see this mm. project, how beautiful and inclusive and celebratory it is and it's mm. such a good vibe off that that three-minute introduction video and people love the idea of the project again. Um, so, yeah, this video went viral and it was amazing mm. to watch Like, because that night I went out to a friend's property they didn't have much reception and that night I dreamt that millions of people over the other world were listening to it. And literally I woke up and it was true. It got to, oh, it had wow. gone from 800,000 to one and a half million in like eight hours. Wow. And um, that was really good for the project because suddenly we had, we could show the record labels, look, people are going to love this. And mm. that's how we got ABC on board. We got mm. um, Barco Records in France to do Europe distribution. We got VP to come on board for the rest of the world distribution. Yeah. And Havana meets Kingston too. We've got another US label involved too, Kumbancha Records, who are involved with the Putumayo world music releases. And um, yeah, it's been really nice to have that support, you know. Fantastic. Mm. And um, do I remember correctly, did you get some of the musicians to Australia to tour with you? Yeah, in 2018, yeah. we did a massive tour. I don't know how we pulled it off. And we'll never be able to repeat it actually because both Bopi and Robbie have passed mm. away you know it's really sad but it is. Um, yeah Sly and Robbie we brought to Australia we had Barbarito Torres from the Buena Vista Social Club and it's a real meeting of legends and it was so good to have them here we did WOMAD Australia WOMAD New Zealand and we did big big shows in Melbourne uh, Sydney and Brisbane well okay mm. well and um, then recently you did it all again Yes, and now part let's two. talk about part two, which is about to be released. So we're June three. So yeah, it's yeah, a bit June. less than three weeks away. Wow, fantastic! Yeah, two weeks, two and a half weeks. Tell us um, about how that record came to be. Well, luckily in these ten day sessions at at Agram in Havana, I mean, I was thinking to do a fifteen track album. You know, I think maybe. I probably knew we would be able to record a bit more music, but I didn't actually know how prolific the group was going to be. So I did 10 days in Agram planning for one or two songs a day. We were doing three, four, five songs a day in the end. So I had to like every night quickly write new charts and, oh my God, what are we going to do tomorrow? I'm, I'm prepared, you know, like to keep up with the band. And it was a really interesting day in the middle of the sessions where I think it was Robbie actually said, let's kick out the Cubans for half a day. Let's just have the Jamaicans. And so in that half day, I think I did eight rhythms with Sly and Robbie and Bongo Herman and Bo P, you know, it was so nice. Um, so there was already um, immediately enough material for two or three records from the outset. Well, so with Havana meets, in, meets Kingston part two, I went back to those original sessions and about half this new album has Sly and Robbie and about half the sessions are completely new. So, And the new album, I want to focus a lot more on original material. Like mm. the first album, we do these really interesting versions or re-recordings, uh, reimaginings, if you like, of like some Buena Vista Social Club classics like Chan Chan and Candela and El Cuatro de Tula. Um, But with this record, there's only a couple of three covers, I think, and much more original music and, and uh, uh, much more groundbreaking. Like one of my favorite singles from the new album is a song called Widashida, and we did a beautiful music video on a 1920s cusser in Havana that was a gift 
from the Spanish king to the Cuban family because they'd helped save his life in World War II. Oh, no, in the Spanish Civil War, I think it was. And, um, and yeah, we, we did this music video all in period. So everyone dressed in 1940s and 30s clothes and it's amazing oh, music. Cool. And it starts with this Cuban flamenco and then it builds into a Spanish groove and then it goes into salsa. Then there's an Afrobeat rhythm in there and then it goes into timba, which is the modern salsa style. So it's a very dynamic um, very dynamic song and yeah, really special music video. Mm. Wow. So it was all based on, on some original uh, rhythm tracks and then you just added overdubs. And yeah, lots of, over, lots of overdubs, lots yeah. of kind of, often, you know, I'll write the basic sketch at the piano generally, find mm. some nice chords or some riffs and, and then when I take it to the musicians, it'll expand from there. So often there's new ideas will come about that really unexpected or, yeah. and then I always just jump on that. If there's a moment of inspiration or some cool idea or I get a flash of inspiration, then I just will go with it, you know? Mm. So um, some of the tracks were recorded, like the Clinton Farron song from the, from Clinton Farron who, who sang with the Gladiators, the famous Jamaican vocal group. Um, his rhythm track is actually one of the tracks we did just with the Jamaicans at Egram with Sly and Robbie. And he loved that song. So later he wrote vocals and we recorded that mm. in Paris. Um, in, in Paris? Yeah, he was in Paris at the time. Yeah, um, right. And, and so, you know, because again, I couldn't take all the, all the singers to Cuba or Jamaica, yeah, you know. So yeah. I work, when I travel the world, I'm working with them as I go along. So yeah, every song has different kind of, story how it come about but um what what it has what the whole project has in common is these amazing jamaican and cuban musicians playing together and then later when i do the vocals mm. i'll work with if there's a vocal song i'll work with obviously i'll reach out to them and you know if they're in europe or the uk or if they're yeah. in jamaica then that's where i'll try and i'll link with them you know fantastic fantastic mm. and how many songs have you got on that uh, new record the new record's 15 tracks i believe wow, that's yeah. big for an album Yeah, there's a couple like what there's one really nice like short instrumental with Rolando Luna and Brabarita Torres. It sounds like it was straight from the Buena Vista Social mm. Club sessions. Um, but yeah, it's 14 full tracks and an interlude style track, I think. So yeah, yeah. beautiful. It's it's ridiculously beautiful musicianship, at least what what I know at this yeah. stage. So yeah, well, um, I can I'm play wondering. some I can play some more tracks today, and then hopefully oh, yeah, right. by the time this yeah. this podcast mm. comes out, you'll be able to play some of the songs too. Fantastic. Um, What are your plans next? Are you going to... So I'm off to... I'm flying to Cuba tomorrow, actually. Oh, really? <laughs> um, I'm doing all my paperwork now, so hopefully everything's going to be smooth. Wish me luck, please, because yeah, it's do. flying after the pandemic's a lot more complicated mm. now. And um, But yeah, I've got a big concert in Cuba, May 26th, for the Havana World Music Festival. Wow. So that's the Havana Meets Kingston band with some special guests uh, in Havana. And I've also got uh, some nice DJ gigs over there. Then I'm flying to London for Glastonbury Festival, which I'm so excited. And I'm, I'm well, not, that's not with Havana Meets Kingston. I'm DJ, doing mm. two or three DJ sets there at Glastonbury. And then we've got a Havana Meets Kingston tour in Europe, which is six festivals, maybe, yeah. maybe more, but definitely six confirmed. And that's in July. And then I'm going to do, I'm hoping to, I was in Mauritius a few months ago and did a really nice show there. So I'm hoping to get back there. And actually, mm. I'd like to get into because I'm so close to Africa there. So I'd like to do a bit more um, recording. And I haven't, I've only traveled to Morocco before. So I'm really hoping to, to get to Ghana, possibly Senegal and a few other places and, and, and experience the African music scene. Wow. And possibly with a project in mind for next year, you know? So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
What a journey. Yeah, that well, phenomenal. it's been two years of pandemic. I'm very, I'm ready to fly, <laughs> like literally metaphorically, musically, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you look ready. You look like yeah, you're yeah, ready no, I'm to good. jump. Fantastic. You know, it's Byron's getting a bit cold yeah. and cloudy yeah. or stuck by 5 p.m. Yeah, yes. and I'm ready for the Europe summer first show. <laughs> nice. I'll bring it on. Look, um, Jake, there's, I would like to change the subject if that's okay. okay. Just uh, one question uh, with young producers in mind. Now, if you think about... Uh, young musicians who are just starting out, who are right yeah. at the beginning of their journey. Yep. Have you got one piece of advice, the most important thing from, you know, a very experienced engineer like yourself to all the young people? What is it they should focus on? What's uh -huh. the one piece of advice you wish you had received when you were uh, at the beginning? Well, I guess, I, I mean, the biggest thing is just go for it, you know, like, mm. I think I, I was lucky enough to travel a lot from a young age because my mum's Australian, but my dad's Maltese English and he mm. was living, um, he lives in the UK. So um, from the age of 16, I was flying to Europe, you know, every couple of years or so to visit him. Um, and I think that gave me a taste for music of the world, you know, yeah. and It expanded. I was already listening in Melbourne on PBS. I was already listening to lots of world music mm. shows. But the travel really helped expand my listening palette. So I'd say to young producers, you know, uh, don't be afraid. Don't be shy. Listen to as much different music as possible. You know, a lot of, a lot of obviously in Australia, we're dominated by commercial radio and so forth. So expand, listen, listen to underground music, different genres, listen to music from around the world, like expand your palette, you know, and um, don't be, don't be afraid. Don't, the, the world's your oyster. There's no limit. You know, I learned <laughs> like mu the beautiful thing about music is it yeah. opens doors. Like really, like when I first went to Jamaica, I had no idea I'd be able to link with major artists over there, but music is just, it opens doors and the love for music opens mm. doors. And, you know, a lot of musicians, my my idols, like artists like Capleton and Sizzler, Anthony B, they want to work. They want to meet, link with producers. They were ready to go, you know. So it was, it was much easier for me to link with these mm. the artists than I was imagining. And so I think, like, you know, work on the quality of what you do and, and, and work hard at your, um, um, you know, your musicianship and your production skills. And, and get your music to a high level and then just go for it, you know? Just go for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the essence I'm getting yeah. out of it. That's good yeah, yeah. advice. Yeah. Um, last question for today. Um, if people want to know more about it, um, where should they go? What is your online presence? Where should people start? To sure, sure. More well, I, I have Bandcamp and that's a nice mm. place to hear my music in high quality. Yep. That's Mr. Savona. Mr. spelled M-I-S-T-A. Savona spelled mm. S-A-V-O-N-A. -A. Um, you can also look up the Havana Meets Kingston website mm -hmm. and... Um, you know, my Spotify is good, good listeners. I think I'm, I'm on about 20 million streams or something with Whoa. across my projects, which is really nice. Um, so yeah, mm. you can definitely find me on Spotify and SoundCloud and so forth. Okay. Um, yeah. And I'm um, going to put all these links into the show notes. Beautiful. So just finish the episode, go straight there, click the buttons and listen to, Thank to Jake's you. music. And you're welcome to put some of the songs in the podcast too, if that's like you're, you're if you'd like to have some music in the background or something. Well, or, if you yeah. give me permission, I would yeah. love to maybe just give a little teaser. Yeah, because it'd be nice to have phenomenal. the bit of the music. Mm. People can hear it as through the episode. It'd be great. Thank you for, for, for that. I, I really yeah. appreciate this. No worries. And, you know, thank you for meeting with me today and oh, sharing beautiful. all your wisdom. That's yeah. fantastic. Thank Wonderful. You so much, Jake. No, I thank really you. It. It's nice to talk about music, isn't it? <laughs> it is, it is. Thank you so much. All right, cheers, man. Cheers. Thank you. Wow, how good was that? 
Mr. Jake Savona gave us so much insight into his production of the Havana Meets Kingston albums. Thank you so much. This is really, really inspiring. After we finished the interview, Jake showed me some new music in his home studio. A nice pair of speakers sat on a small desk in a medium-sized room. It didn't look anything like a studio at all. And Jake told me that a lot of water came through this house in the recent floods, hence the sparse improvised appearance. It must have been terrible. But Jake spoke about it all as if it was just a minor bump on the road. His mind seemed to be in full speed ahead mode. Off to the next adventure, off to more musical projects. In fact, actually just hours or just minutes after I left, he went off towards the airport, constantly on the move. I really got a sense of Jake's unstoppable can-do attitude. Jake's album Havana Meets Kingston Part 2 is coming out June 3rd, 2022. So three days after the release of this podcast interview. So the countdown is on everybody. But if you can't wait to have a listen, head over to the show notes. I added links to Mr. Savona's social channels and he also gave me seven music videos, which are all there in the show notes for you. Each one is fantastic and well worth watching start to finish. But I'd like to point out one in particular. It's called Guarachara, which I probably pronounce incorrectly. But I reckon it might just be one of the best music videos I've ever seen. So if you enjoyed this episode today, please head over to mixartist.com.au slash production talk to find heaps more amazing interviews with inspiring musical guests. Or hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And while you're there, give this podcast a five-star rating, please. This would mean the world to me. But most importantly, spread the message and recommend this podcast to all your friends and all your fellow self-producing musicians everywhere. And of course, I'd like to invite you to visit me at mixartist.com.au where I offer music mixing services to musicians who demand nothing but the best sound and tasteful musical mixes. That's what I love to do. That's all for today. If you want to hang around for a little bit longer and listen to Jake's music, a little teaser here for you. Otherwise, I'll see you next week. You have a fantastic week. Bye for now. Contigo me voy mi santo, aunque me cueste morir. Por favor.